This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we'll talk about voting rights in Florida. Republicans there are trying to undermine the biggest voting rights victory of last year. That was the restoration of the franchise to more than a million former felons. Sasha Abramsky will report. Also, Trump and Iran. Jeet here. The new guy at The Nation magazine will comment. And for the first time, your Minnesota moment meets Ivanka Watch in the Boundary Waters Wilderness Canoe Area. First up, 10 Democrats appeared on stage together last night for two hours. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, for today's political update, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's the nation's national affairs correspondent, He's and he's host of a terrific new podcast. It's called Next Left. We reached him today in Madison. John, welcome back. It's good, man. Have you been canoeing with Ivanka Trump? <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Okay, just check it. Later in this hour. That would be bigger than anything. Yeah, well, uh, so my que- my opening question here is, what would you say, would you say the biggest political news today is the Democratic uh, debates? Nope. What is the biggest political news of the day? <laughs> the biggest political news of the day, unfortunately, is the uh, Supreme Court's decision on gerrymandering. Yes. Or rather, the signal from the Supreme Court of the United States that the federal judiciary will not act, in fact, essentially, the court saying cannot act, uh, to defend democracy from politicians who draw district lines that the court acknowledges undermine the right of voters to really have an influence over our politics. It is a uniquely terrible decision, and uh, one that Elena Kagan uh, Justice Elena Kagan, to her immense credit, in a terrific dissent, says debases our democracy. Yeah, I, re- having read your new post at thenation.com on the Supreme Court decision on gerrymandering, uh, I, I went to the Elena Kagan uh, dissent. Uh, the facts of this case are are pretty pretty shocking. And as you say, even the Republican majority on the court agrees with the facts and that they are terrible. North Carolina had a plan drawn by Republican state lawmakers that explicitly aimed for what they called partisan advantage. Uh, North Carolina is a part is a is a purple state. Uh, Republicans have a slight advantage, but not much. And the um, key goal of the lawmakers there in a Republican-controlled legislature was, quote, to maintain the current partisan makeup of North Carolina's congressional delegation, which had 10 Republicans and three Democrats. Um, The guy who was in charge of this uh, explained, and this was cited at the Supreme Court, quote, I think electing Republicans is better than electing Democrats, so I drew this map to help foster what I think is better for the country, close quote. And the plan worked. In 2016, the vote was uh, Republicans won slightly more than 50%, 53%, but they won 10 of the 13 congressional districts. And uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts says, well, that's all true and that's terrible, but, but what exactly? <laughs> 
Well, but uh, Roberts argued that, you know, this just isn't what the courts are supposed to do. We're, it's not our job to fix these things. Uh, it's not our job as a separate but equal branch of government, or at least a separate branch of government, to check and balance the abuses of politicians against the basic foundations of American democracy. And, you know, I know that sounds like an extreme reading of it, but essentially that was his message. And he tried, I think he realized how absurd that argument was, that the basic concept of having three branches of government is particularly to step in in moments like this, have the courts to step up, when the other branches of government are actually abusing the process. Um, I think he realized the absurdity of his argument. So then he tried to make a case that, you know, just the court didn't really have the capacity to do it. Like, I guess federal judges just aren't smart enough to figure this stuff <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, it's too hard. Yeah. It's too hard for yeah. them. It makes my head hurt. <laughs> um, and Kagan, in her wonderful, wonderful dissent, that is just, you know, by far one of the outstanding statements that a, a justice has written in a very long time, Kagan said, essentially, yes, we do. And she cited <laughs> all kinds of examples of, you know, stepping into much more complex cases. And trust me, copyright law is probably more complex. And then she also noted that at precisely the time that federal courts and courts around the country are stepping up to address these extreme gerrymandering abuses, the court says we can't do it. We don't have the capacity to do it. I mean, the, the actual presence of the cases, John, undermines Roberts's argument. Yeah, because it's... courts around the country have dealt with this issue, and they're dealing with it, frankly, rather ably. Yeah, it's a, a shocking and dispiriting thing because now this is just a green light to Republican legislatures in all the states they control to gerrymander to their heart's content and the federal courts aren't aren't going to stop them. Uh, the surprising thing is that the Democrats were able to regain control of the House in, uh, in 26, 2018 despite partisan gerrymandering, but, you know, it's still, the House is still way out of balance from the the actual uh, partisan divisions in the electorate nationwide. Well, exactly. And this is an important thing to understand. Uh, obviously, you know, we look at state delegations around the country, and what we recognize is that there are many states that would have, it would send a very different delegation to the House of Representatives if they weren't gerrymandered. My own state of Wisconsin is an example. Uh, we have had elections in Wisconsin where if you had proportional representation, uh, the Democrats would win, you know, going away for legislative races and congressional races. And But because we don't, because we have districts drawn in a gerrymandered form and a first-past-the-post voting system, uh, the Republicans maintain uh, in our congressional delegation a 5-3 advantage, even though the state is almost evenly divided at the presidential level. So it should at least be 4-4. And then we have examples from recent uh, state legislative contests where you literally had 200,000 more people vote for the Democrats for state legislature, and yet the Republicans ended up with a two-to-one majority in the state house. Terrible. So, I mean, this is just... It, it is it is abusing the basic premises of democracy, and it's clear. You know, we're going by the numbers, right? We're not going by, 
you know, some kind of fantasy. We're looking at, at evidence of the abuse. This is something the court could easily deal with. And, in fact, here's the thing that probably people should take away from this most of all, because it's not as if we have no hope. There are uh, congressional actions being taken. There still is the reality of the state courts, and there's the reality of state legislatures. There's, there's places electorally to intervene. But one thing to understand is this. If Merrick Garland had had his hearings and, as many people expected, been approved to serve on the Supreme Court in 2016, this decision would have gone differently. Mm. I can't guarantee that, obviously. I can't read his mind. But if you look at the pattern of where he has weighed in over the years, there's a very good chance. I should say, rather than say it would go differently, the assumption is that it would have gone differently. So, I mean, understand this. It isn't the Supreme Court making this decision. Mitch McConnell made this decision. And I would just and add one. For democracy. I would just add one other thing uh, in this discussion, and that is the Republicans often say, "Well, partisan gerrymandering. Everybody does it. The Democrats do it when they're in charge, and the Republicans do it when they're in charge. That's just the way it is in America." But in California, our biggest state, where I currently reside, <laughs> the Democrats have overwhelming control of state government. What they did with that was appoint a nonpartisan commission to arrange the congressional districts. So it's not true that the Democrats do it whenever they get the chance. Well, in fairness, some Democrats have. Yeah. And so what we understand is that there is the possibility of abuse, that either party can abuse. It's just that in the old days, it was kind of amateur hack politics. The Republicans have, in recent years, gone pro. They have accepted immense amounts of support uh, directly through independent you know, funding um, from people like the Koch brothers and others who really are absolutely determined to elect legislatures, which then uh, literally buy the best computer software you can imagine and game these systems at levels that are highly sophisticated. And that's the thing to understand. And Kagan, again, went to some of this in a way that, you know, Roberts tried to deny. Uh, we now live in an era, because of computer technology, where gerrymandering can really go to levels that are that is way beyond what you learned in your history class or in your politics class or whatever as a kid. Um, this is not, you know, a hack politician drawing a district for his friend, as we've seen in both parties do throughout history. This is clearly designed to create anti-democratic, small-d democratic results, results that thwart the will of the people. We are seeing the play out of this nationwide uh, in all sorts of states, and frankly, we have seen it at the congressional level, um, where more people voted for Democrats for Congress in some cycles, and yet Republicans retain control. And, and so this is something we ought to address, and it ought to be universal. It ought to be both parties recognizing it because both parties should be willing to have a competition where they win or lose based on their ideas. But the fundamental reality at this point is our Republican friends do not seem to believe they can win based on their ideas. They're determined to do so based on unfair lines. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court of the United States, which is supposed to sort things like this out, 
has instead essentially shut down one of the key avenues to address the crisis. The Republican effort to game the system to avoid the kind of open democratic competition you're talking about has many parts. One part was extreme partisan gerrymandering. Another part, a new idea of Donald Trump's, is to add a citizenship question to the census, which would discourage, we think, around 8 million uh, Latinos and immigrants from participating in the census. And that, too, would shift the makeup of Congress because the apportionment of the House of Representatives is based on the the census which the Constitution requires be conducted every 10 years. There was a ruling today on Trump's proposal to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. Where do we stand on that? It was a good ruling. I mean, it was a 5-4. In this case, Roberts switched. And I think this is where we see, you know, some of the realities of John Roberts' role. John Roberts is, is very willing to do structural damage to democracy as a lead voice on Citizens United, flood money into politics, as somebody who was supportive of uh, the Assaults on the Voting Rights Act, as somebody who now has defended gerrymandering and or essentially accepted gerrymandering. So, I mean, he's not a good player. By the same token, he is at least to some extent a swing player. And one of the places where he does swing is, uh, frankly, where people are doing genuinely dishonest things. It doesn't say that Roberts is always a good player, but he does, you know, there are points where he will push back. Um, I think there's very little question that the Trump administration came in with such lousy arguments <laughs> for this citizenship question. I mean, really, like, absurdly shameful arguments. If you note... In the majority decision on this, there's even a section where they talk about Wilbur Ross, and they're very gentle in it. They basically say, mm, the facts don't really align with what Mr. Ross and his secretary and his allies have said on this thing. Um, now, I can translate that from the legalese for listeners to this station. Please. And that is saying, Wilbur Ross lied. <laughs> Wilbur Ross, Secretary of Commerce, the department that's in charge of conducting the census. But I want to underline here one, one fact that, unlike the decision on extreme partisan gerrymandering, this isn't the final and, and last no. decision on this. What happened in the, the majority that John Roberts led... Uh, said what Wilbur Ross has said is a lie and ridiculous, but basically asked the Trump administration to come up with better arguments to present them in the lower courts and gave them the opportunity to come back sometime, and it has to be in the near future. So this is not the really the final resolution of this. No, it's very different than what you had in the gerrymandering one, which is basically say, oh, well, we're just not going to do this, right? Right. Shutting it down. Whereas in this case, it's saying, you know, you guys are such a bunch of jokers. That even though we'd like to give you something, <laughs> you know, we, we just can't because it's so absurd. And, and so, yes, they did push it back uh, and say you've got that space in which to do it. But in fairness to the, the practice and process, uh, there's a reasonable argument to be made that with the timeline where it stands now, uh, the court's decision may Again, we're not going to say will, but we're going to say may prevent the addition of a citizenship question, just because the, the timing is insufficient. Yeah, yeah. And, um, 
And so that makes this a hugely important ruling, not as clear a ruling, um, and one that leaves open a lot of space for, you know, malfeasance and manipulations in the future. But um, I cannot begin to emphasize how important this census stuff is. Yeah. People, people, I think, sometimes think the census is, you know, bureaucratic. Even when they've heard talk about this, they just see it as, you know, kind of process stuff. This is not process stuff. The census does decide how we draw congressional and legislative and local government district lines. It's hugely important in that regard. But the census also determines, uh, you know, how we allocate federal spending yeah. and federal aid and, and all sorts of other things. It, it doesn't, I shouldn't say it determines, but it sets the, the grounding for it. it. It sets the basis for it. If we have a warped and dysfunctional census that does not record huge numbers of Americans, where they are, uh, where they are moving, where states are changing. Uh, we really warp the dynamics of governance in America. And so now that we've got this ruling, as flimsy as it is, um, we, ought to, we the people ought to put every bit of effort into making sure that this 2020 count is as big and robust and accurate as possible, because out of those expanded numbers comes the possibility the, the increased possibility that we move toward what we've been talking about for years, which is an America that is much more diverse. And, you know, that diversity is already there, but that that diversity is recorded, recognized, and influences our governing decisions. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with John Nichols of The Nation magazine, and we do want to talk about the debate last night and the one coming up tonight. Last night we had 10 Democratic Candidates on stage together for two hours, uh, Elizabeth Warren and I guess you could say nine others who are po uh, po polling uh, mostly at 1% or less. Cory Booker's at 3%. Yep. The big ones are tonight, Bernie Biden and Kamala Harris on the stage together. Elizabeth Warren was certainly, I thought she was magnificent last night. What did you think? Well, I thought she was very gracious. <laughs> You know, she didn't interrupt. She didn't demand a lot of time. Uh, some people thought she wasn't as aggressive as they'd like to have seen her. But the fact of the matter is that Elizabeth Warren was clearly a first among equals on this stage. She was the one candidate who is in sort of the front runner group, uh, who was pulled out of that front runner group and put over on the stage with a bunch of folks who, frankly, are dramatically behind her in the polling and have really hard uh, challenges as regards making a case for themselves as, as likely presidential nominees. Um, what Warren did in this circumstance was fascinating. She basically delivered her core messages. And her opening, I thought, was an exceptionally good, you know, basically one-minute synopsis of what she's about. That's a big deal because she's very she's a kind of a hot commodity right now, if you will, on the cover of magazines, including the Nation, or at least well played in the Nation and and uh, Time and other publications, and a lot of people tuning in got a, a taste of it, and it was effective. She also uh, did a couple other things that were really smart. Uh, her clothes, I think, was exemplary and very powerful. Yeah, uh, but in the midst of the debate. When the subject of Medicare for All came up, 
instead of, you know, playing the usual political games, she acknowledged that Bernie Sanders, who candidate another uh, progressive candidate for the presidency, has been, you know, very much in the forefront on this issue. And she said, I'm with Bernie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, some people might think that's dumb politics. I think that's really smart <laughs> politics because it basically says, you know, look, I'm going to recognize where good ideas come from. I'm going to embrace them. Uh, and, you know, depending on how this race goes out, maybe, you know, there might even be a few Sanders supporters that end up being Warren supporters. So I just thought she, on a whole bunch of levels, handled the debate very well without, notably, ever really stirring it up with the other candidates on the stage. Yeah. They were very respectful of her. Um, and to the extent that they argued, <laughs> there were arguments, there were like, you know, like extended arguments uh, between, you know, Julian Castro and Beto O'Rourke about, you know, literally numerical details as regards uh, immigration laws. And uh, then Tim Ryan and uh, Tulsi Gabbard about some very meaningful uh, differences on issues of war and peace. Uh, those are great. You know, they were good discourses. But, you know, if you're Warren, you just sort of sit there and say, that's fine. You know, go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, and so I, I guess the way to, to put it is Warren had a very good debate. She didn't uh, overplay her hand. I think she came out. Uh, she came in as a front runner. She comes out as a front runner. I do think a couple of the other candidates did very well, and you know, put the you know benefited themselves. I think there's no question. Julian Castro had a very good night, yeah, uh, and one that really identified him as as somebody who will get a lot of attention. I also give credit to somebody. I, I just did not see this coming, and it's my own fault. <laughs> Bill De Blasio, populist, blasting away. Yeah, <laughs> I thought he did, did himself some favors there. And a few other candidates, Tulsi Gabbard, I think uh, many people were introduced to her, uh, although she's taken a lot of criticism during this campaign. There could be many debates about where, you know, her past and things like this. But on stage, her outlining of a different view of foreign policy, I think, was very effective and, frankly, was heard by quite a few people. Yeah, and when, and when she uh, she was absolutely authoritative in dismissing the argument that we should keep troops uh, in, in the Mideast. She just said, bring them home, period, and drew on her authority as a combat veteran uh, to to make that argument. No qualifications, uh, no hemming and hawing. In the couple minutes we have left here, I just want to spend one minute talking about your new podcast from The Nation. It's called Next Left, and it features not the presidential candidates who we've been talking about, but the progressive... We don't let them on. They're not allowed. The progressive leaders of the the next wave of American politics. This week you have a fascinating interview with Ro Khanna, who I didn't know much about. He's the guy who represents Silicon Valley uh, in Congress. Just give us a, a minute or two on, on what Ro Khanna has to say. Well, Ro Khanna's a really amazing guy, and I think that anybody who, who listens to this podcast will be blown away just to know that there is such a person in Congress. Yeah. He's not the only, you know, exemplary member of Congress. We've got quite a few now. Things are, things are getting better. But um, one of the fascinating things about Ro Khanna is that he is the grandson of one of Gandhi's allies in India, uh, the son of immigrants, and he traces his political approach to the anti-colonialism and the democratizing vision of uh, 
the Indian, you know, anti-colonialists of 75 years ago. And, and this is a real part of who he is. And so his approach to foreign policy is very distinctive and, and very powerful. It's, it, just to hear him talk about uh, not just issues like Yemen uh, and war powers, but the whole vision of where U.S. foreign policy could and should be it was remarkable. The other thing is he is the congressman from the Silicon Valley. And the simple reality is that uh, most of our Congress, uh, like we got a lot of members there who probably struggle to turn their phones on. Um, <laughs> and here in Rokana, you've got somebody who actually advised the Obama administration on a, on a host of technological issues, has written extensively about industrial issues, and, and really gets this stuff. And hearing him talk about it is simply... Uh, I think it's something of a revelation and, yeah. and quite encouraging. That's Ro Khanna with John Nichols on the new Next Left podcast from The Nation. You can get it at thenation.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. John, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's been great talking to you, and have fun canoeing with Ivanka Trump. <laughs> I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch in the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, Trump did not go to war with Iran last week. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, voting rights in Florida. The struggle continues. Now I want to talk about war with Iran. For comment, we turn to Jeet here. He's a new national affairs correspondent for The Nation. Previously, he was staff writer for The New Republic, and he's written for The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The American Prospect, and The Guardian. And he wrote the book In Love with Art, Francoise Mouly's Adventures in Comics with Art Spiegelman. We reached him today in Regina, Saskatchewan. Sheet here. Welcome to the program. Uh, good to be here, and good to be at The Nation. I'm confused about Trump. I thought he was kind of an isolationist. He campaign saying he wanted to get us out of what he calls the endless wars of his predecessors, which sounds like a pretty good idea. He <laughs> even wants to try to get along with North Korea, but he's also appointed some mad war hawks as his closest foreign policy people, John Bolton as national security advisor, Mike Pompeo as secretary of state, and they are eager to threaten and attack all potential rivals, apparently including Russia, and now Iran, and we almost attacked Iran, and then Trump called it off at the last minute. So what exactly is his policy? Is he a neo-isolationist, or does he favor the Bolton kind of aggressive attacks on uh, our enemies? Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, we can't get very far by thinking that Trump has any consistent policies, but I think he has sort of consistent practices, and he's always, like, you know, found some advantage in uh, sending mixed messages and in creating factions around him that fight it out. 
Uh, and he likes to surround himself with tough guys, you know, like, I mean, if you look at like, even outside of foreign policy, people like, you know, Lewandowski or Manafort, he likes like, you know, like uh, what he calls killers. He wants to be surrounded by killers because he thinks that they'll uh, scare people. And I think, you know, his whole idea is like, you know, he has the Bolton and Pompeo to scare people. And then he's the deal maker. If he gets into the room with, uh, you know, uh, Kim Jong-un or with the uh, Iranian leaders, uh, he can make the deal. Uh, the problem is that, like, you know, like if you're sending these mixed messages, um, you know, having Bolton and Pompeo undermines the attempts at deals. And I think that we actually, the Iran really illustrates like just how reckless this mixed message policy is, because I think there's real evidence that Trump has been trying to create a back channel to Iran, that he, you know, um, tried to get um, uh, the Japanese prime minister uh, who visited Iran to, like, you know, send a message. Uh, and unfortunately, like, this creates an incentive for the people who don't want to deal, Bolton and Pompeo, to try to subvert it. And, like, immediately before Abe went to uh, Iran, uh, they ramped up the sanctions. So, like, Trump doesn't seem to realize it. But, and then if you think about it from the Iranian point of view or the North Korean point of view or the Russian point of view, like if you have this, you know, Trump being all buddy-buddy and friendly, kind of like Biden, <laughs> but also the United States' actual policy is, like, becoming much more harsh, then you're going to get paranoid. You're going to think, like, this guy's a scam artist. Uh, this guy is, like, you know, can we say BS artist on the uh, air? Yes, yes, uh, we can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so and and that they're they're trying to snooker us, and I think that that actually explains the kind of what's happening with Iran. Like I think that the Iranian regime, you know, which already has many reasons to distrust the United States, is becoming ever more paranoid. Uh, the sort of hardliners of the Revolutionary Guard are really coming to the fore, and it's it's because it's not just because of Bolton and Pompeo, but also because that the whole administration is sending this incredible mixed message of like you know let's make a backroom deal, and also like, you know, just today, Trump tweeting out, you know, uh, he uh, warning around that he could obliterate them. So how bad is it to have mixed messages? How bad is it to be inconsistent? Things like this have happened in the past, haven't they? Yes. Mixed messages are like one of the major ways that war started. Like, I think if you look at the Korean War, Stalin and the Chinese leadership were unsure about what the United States wanted to do with Korea. And they thought that, like, the uh, Atchison and Truman had sent uh, messages that, you know, like, South Korea was not really part of the American sphere of influence. And that was really the mixed message that led to the war. Uh, more recently, uh, listeners might remember the first Gulf War, where, like, the sort of, you know, the Bush uh, seniors administration through diplomat April Galipsi sent to, seemed to send a message that they didn't really care about Kuwait. Oh, yeah. And that seemed to have emboldened Saddam Hussein. So I, I think, like, you know, um, if we get a situation where, like, you know, Iran... Um, uh, and or Russia or North Korea, you know, think, well, Trump is just a paper tiger. He's just saying these things. And then Bolton uh, and Pompeo really ramp up, you know, military stuff. You know, we could we could blunder our way into a war. Uh, so I think it's actually like a, the situation. I mean, I'm not saying it's a certainty. It's a long tail risk. But I think the long tail risk of a war is much more serious than people realize. So maybe it's a mistake to use the term foreign policy when talking about Trump, but on something like attacking Iran, how does he decide whether to do it or whether not to do it? How did he decide to call it off in this case? 
Well, I mean, allegedly, he, his claim is that he was told that there would be civilian casualties, and he said uh, to the general, uh, general, well, I don't want to do that. It's not worth it. But I actually think there's he's, he's someone who likes to surround himself with people who give him different advice, which can be a good thing, except that he like impulsively goes with you know maybe the last person he listens to. And so it does seem to me that there were people on the right, you know, in the Fox News universe, like Tucker Carlson, who, you know, got through to him and convinced him that this would end his presidency. So so I think that he's, like, you know, trying to please different... And I think he's also very aware that there are divisions in the Republican Party. There's a real, still a real neocon, hardline, you know, you know, that's American power to the outmost um, faction. And there's also, like, a lot of Republicans, like a lot of Democrats, who are tired of the forever wars. Uh, and so Trump is trying to, like, split the difference, like, you know, give the neocons Bolton and Pompeo and give the Tucker Carlson's, uh, you know, like, that he'll, like, pull out of it at the last minute. The, the danger is, like, at, you know, at some moment he could decide, you know, like, to go with Bolton and Pompeo when they want to, like, push for war. Uh, and then he could also provoke, you know, tensions that, like, you know, uh, push especially the Iranians, but also possibly the North Koreans or Russians. Uh, into, like, you know, an adversarial position where, like, the, the advice of a Bolton makes more sense. So it's, it's a very scary time. I mean, so I, I guess we should all be thanking Tucker Carlson for the fact that we're <laughs> not attacking Iran. Well, I, I mean, I hate to, you have to give the devil his due. I mean, I hate to praise it, but, uh, 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 but any, in any case, I mean, I think that, uh, uh, or I think we should be grateful that Trump is at least aware that there are there are Republicans who don't want war, and he's trying to, you know, as so often, trying to please different factions of his own party and his own base. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, but what it does give is a very inconsistent, incoherent foreign policy, which I think, like, you know, greatly increases the risks of war. So, Trump may be incoherent and ignorant when it comes to other countries. But there's another thing about foreign policy of the Trump White House, and that is that there are some reports we're getting now that what he calls the deep state is actually doing stuff that he doesn't even know about. Remind us about this story about malware targeting the Russian power grid. Yes. So um, the New York Times had a story uh, uh, which is quite detailed and uh, I think persuasive uh, that um, the uh, uh, American you know, uh, military has ramped up uh, um, its cyber capabilities against Russia and, and is, you know, trying to develop capabilities where they could take out Russia's power grid. And this is all part of, you know, this kind of shadow war that's been going on uh, with Russia with sort of accusations uh, that Russia has uh, interfered in the election. And, and then, uh, uh, but what one thing in the time story is that it, seemed to indicate that Trump was not made aware of the extent of uh, these uh, developments. And then Trump later you know, tweeted out that the story was fake news and a lie and treason, <laughs> which is like uh, kind of pushing it. Like, I, I don't even understand, see how it could be treasonous to uh, publish something that's not true. Uh, but anyways, uh, the, but, but, the, but the main thing is, that we're getting like incredible mixed messages because I think Trump does genuinely believe that he can, you know, paper over differences with Russia through friendship, through cordiality to Putin. Uh, but meanwhile, his 
government, if we want to call it the deep state, or I think the older term, the military-industrial complex, it, to me is maybe a little bit better. Uh, the military-industrial complex against Trump's will is like, you know, like ramping up uh, tensions with Russia. And again, I, I think that's a very dangerous situation. One more thing. Why are you in Regina, Saskatchewan? Ah, well, nation readers and uh, uh, listeners will be pleased to know that Regina is the birthplace of Canadian socialism. Yes. Uh, it's the, the first, uh, Tommy Douglas created socialized medicine in this province, which was then later adopted by the rest of Canada, then the first socialist government above a municipal level in North America. But the main, <laughs> so, so it all makes it very attractive. But the main reason is that my partner teaches at the University of Regina, teaches British history. And as a writer, I can write anywhere. So we, we find ourselves in this lovely province. And you are a Canadian citizen. I'm a Canadian citizen, yes. Jeet here is the new national affairs correspondent for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Jeet, thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, thanks for uh, uh, having me on. It's a great, uh, great conversation. I'm John Wiener, live in LA on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. And now a musical moment. Uh, all over the country... Schools, uh, cities and towns are facing demands to change the name of schools named after Robert E. Lee. And a lot of schools are looking for a low-budget option that would remove the Robert and the E but keep the Lee. Students have been campaigning for changing the name to Stan Lee High School. English teachers and librarians have proposed Harper Lee. But the best idea comes from Charles Pierce at Esquire, Staggerly High School. Just think about the song. I was standing on the corner when I heard my bulldog bark. He was barking at the two men who were gambling in the dark. I was Staggerly and Billy, two men who It was Staggerly and Billy, two men who gambled late. Staggerly threw seven. Billy swore that he threw eight. Lloyd Price in 1959 with the song that could be the school song of Staggerly High School. Next up, voting rights in Florida and your Minnesota moment meets Ivanka Watch. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at the Trump Watch podcast. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, rising up with Sonali Kolhatkar. But first... One of the great progressive victories last November, along with the midterm election of a new Congress was the vote in Florida to restore voting rights to people who had been convicted of felonies and served their sentences. Felon enfranchisement, we called it. And we also called it one of the great victories for voting rights in decades. 1.4 million people were going to get back their right to vote. 
But the news from Florida since then has not been so good. And for that, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. Sasha writes regularly for The Nation and also The American Prospect and The Atlantic. He's the author of several books, including The American Way of Poverty and most recently, Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. And he also hosts The Abramsky Report, Online at theabramskireport.com, no spaces. Sasha, welcome back. John, thanks for having me on. Well, you cover the Florida felon reenfranchisement campaign for The Nation and for our podcast last fall. Remind us what it took to win that fight. Well, I did cover it for The Nation. Um, I actually have been writing about it for 20 years at this point. And it's one of those things where you write about something so often and it's such an injustice. And eventually you think, well, this is one of those injustices that we're just stuck with. And then last November, Florida voters actually decided that they had had enough of permanent disenfranchisement. And I think I should explain a little bit about what we're talking about here. Yeah. Because it's, it's kind of complicated. Most states disenfranchise people while they're in prison or parole. There are a couple states that don't. But most states say if you've been convicted of a felony offense, and you go to prison, or even if you don't go to prison, you're serving a sentence in the community, that while you're serving that sentence, you don't have full civil rights. Now, a bunch of southern states mainly have taken that a step further, and they had these Jim Crow laws dating back to the late 19th century that basically were looking for ways to disenfranchise African Americans and poor whites. And they came up with this set of guidelines that basically said, you commit a felony, you go to prison, you go to jail, you never vote again. And because we're in an era of mass incarceration where so many people are getting felony convictions, the numbers add up. And so what you found in Florida was by 2000, that election when just a handful of votes separated George Bush and Al Gore, in 2000, there were three quarters of a million people in Florida who couldn't vote. And if you fast forward to 2018, there were 1.4 million. Imagine that in a state of Florida, over 10% of adult potential voters have been taken off the voter rolls because at some point in their life they were convicted of something, even if it wasn't something serious. So Florida voters said, we've had enough of this. And there was this huge campaign, it mobilized thousands of people around the state, and interestingly, it created coalitions between very progressive groups and very conservative groups. So you had the Christian Coalition, you had Americans for Prosperity, you had all these conservative groups who came on board and supported reenfranchisement. And so you're right, it passed in November and there was this huge sort of collective sigh of relief that finally an injustice was being righted. And now the Republicans in the State House are trying to sabotage it. Before we get to now, there's one other question I have about the campaign last November. There was surprisingly little organized opposition, uh, even though we assume that most of the beneficiaries of this new law will vote for Democratic candidates. Why do you think the Republicans didn't fight the amendment uh, in, at that time? Well, there, there are two things. The first is that there's actually a lot of data out there now that says that it may not benefit the Democrats disproportionately because a huge number of poor conservative whites in Florida and throughout the South have also been caught up in the war on drugs and the war on crime. So there's a controversy as to which political party it will benefit but I think the bigger question is, this is a question of justice. It's not a question of pragmatic politics, who wins, who loses. It's a question about fairness. 
And there was this campaign, the Florida Restoration Rights Restoration Commission, and a group of others, League of Women Voters, the American Civil Liberties Union, and they created a campaign that very, very intelligently used the language of rights. So they didn't talk about partisan political advantage. They talked about civic dignity. They talked about second chances. They talked about the fact that if we're going to release people, we want them to be reintegrated into the community. And this is a language that criminal justice reformers have been using for decades now. But the coalition around Amendment 4 managed to take that language and popularize it. And they managed to connect with voters across racial, class, regional, political demographics. And at the end of the day, it got 65% of the vote. It got far higher vote than Ron DeSantis did for governor or that any of the senatorial candidates did. Nothing in 2018 in Florida polled higher than Amendment 4. It's a wonderful story. The Republicans did not oppose it in November, but now in the state legislature, the Republicans are trying to stop it. Tell us what's going on there now. Yeah, you know, it's weird because there wasn't organized opposition. The Republican Party didn't take an official stand on it. Ron DeSantis, when he was running for governor, pretty much stayed neutral, though he expressed some reservations about speed of reenfranchisement and so on. So the Republicans basically sat it out, which was a huge sea change because what's been happening for the last many, many years is there's been this sort of very discretionary process where if you want to try to get your vote back, you have to go before the governor, you have to go before a clemency board, which includes the governor and two other cabinet members, and you have to individually argue your case. And so in a place where there are 1.4 million disenfranchised, that was essentially tantamount to permanent disenfranchisement, because basically in any given year, the clemency board wouldn't hear more than a few hundred or maybe at most a couple thousand cases. So you had this sort of in practice permanent disenfranchisement and Governor Scott, the previous governor, very much supported that. Um, in fact, the only governor in recent times who tried to change it was Governor Christ, who was a Republican at the time. He's now no longer a Republican, but he actually did try to reenfranchise large numbers of people. And Scott came in and the Republican Party made it very, very clear they no longer supported reenfranchisement. So I think what's happened is that old analysis, the analysis that governed Rick Scott's approach to disenfranchisement or Jeb Bush's approach to disenfranchisement, that old analysis has resurrected itself. And the Republicans nationally, not just in Florida, but nationally, the Republican Party has embraced one way of restricting the franchise after the next. So in Iowa and in Virginia, Democratic governors tried to speed up reenfranchisement. Republican governors came in, undermined the reenfranchisement. Um, you see it with gerrymandering. You see it with all the different ways that Republican state legislatures are trying to put impediments in the way of voting, whether it's putting in place new voter ID requirements or whether it's limiting early polling or whether it's shutting the number of polling booths in poor, poor and minority neighborhoods. So you see all these ways in which the Republican Party nationally has decided the best way it can stay in power at a state level or gain power federally, et cetera, et cetera. The best way to do this is limiting the numbers who can vote. And I think that's what's happening in Florida again, that they suddenly realized, oh my word, the franchise is gonna be massively expanded. They're gonna be a whole bunch of new voters who are gonna have a political input and have a political say and have political priorities that they want their candidates to address. And some of those priorities are gonna involve things like economic justice. Some of those priorities are gonna involve 
redistributive policies because we're talking about a huge pool of very, very poor people and their families who suddenly have a political say, whether they're conservative or whether they're liberal, they have a political say. The reenfranchisement of ex-felons is the law in Florida. How can the Republicans get around this now? They, they, they can't. Well, they, they can't say we're going to completely ignore Amendment 4. What they said is it needs to be clarified. So Amendment 4 basically said if you've completed your sentence, you can vote. And what the Republicans in the State House said was, well, what do we mean by completion of sentence? Well, obviously, you can't be in prison anymore. Obviously, you can't be on parole. But what about fines? Because most people, when they get a felony conviction, they pick up a series of fines. They pick up a series of damages. Um, they have to pay court costs. There are certain things that they have to pay, which can run to many thousands of dollars. And so historically, the fines are part of the sentence unless a judge says, you know what, we're going to move this out of the criminal area and we're going to consider those financial penalties civil liens and we're going to work out a monthly payment. And as soon as a judge says that, historically, that's no longer been part of the sentence. So now what the Republicans have said is, well, we're going to clarify Amendment 4 to say that you have to pay off all of your civil liens in order to vote. Now, if you're a poor person, you've come out of prison, you're working a minimum wage job, if you're lucky, because there's huge unemployment amongst the ex-prisoner population, you may be able to scrape together, if you're good at scraping money together, 100 or $200 a month to pay off your civil lien. What you're going to be unable to do is pay thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands all at once. And so they found a way of doing an end run around Amendment 4, which basically says if you owe anything, you remain disenfranchised. And there are varying estimates. Nobody's got an exact number. But the estimates that I heard when I was doing the reporting is what that means is it reduces the numbers from 1.4 million who can reapply to vote down to about 800,000. So it almost halves it. Uh, that's estimates, though, because nobody really knows. So in order to get the right to vote back, you have to pay the state or you have to pay your restitution. Isn't this a new kind of poll tax you have to pay to vote? Isn't that unconstitutional? Well, they're going to be legal challenges. And when I was doing the interviews, the ACLU and the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition and the League of Women Voters all indicated that if this goes into effect, and it hasn't been signed yet, DeSantis has not signed this bill into law, but he's given indication he probably will. If it goes into effect, there'll be a rash of legal suits because you're exactly right. What it does is it puts a financial penalty onto people making it harder for poor people in particular to vote. And I spoke to lots of people. I was driving around the, the state. I went to Miami. I went to Fort Myers. I went to St. Petersburg. And I was interviewing people. And some of the people I interviewed were facing exactly that. They, they'd done their sentence. They were law-abiding citizens. They had jobs. They were paying taxes. But they had civil liens outstanding. And they had payment plans. They, I spoke to a, one woman who had a monthly payment plan. She was completely in compliance with that plan. She thought she was going to get her right to vote back after Amendment 4. Now it's not going to happen. And the heartbreak in that woman's story, because this isn't just sort of a pragmatic thing, for many, many returning citizens coming back from the prison system, this is a defining element of their humanity. And I, I spoke to one woman. She said, I'm damned if I'm going to accept that I have less rights than anybody else. And that's how it's felt, that if you can't vote in the most visceral way possible, you're being told by the state that you live in that you're a subclass of citizen, that you're not fully a citizen. And so this has a huge emotional impact on the lives of these individuals. They're trying to make good. They're trying to do what they've been told they have to do and return and integrate into the community and become law-abiding. 
And now they're being told, doesn't matter what you do, for years, maybe decades, you're still not going to be able to vote. And that was never the intent of Amendment 4. The whole point of Amendment 4 was give these people a second chance. That was how it was phrased, and that was how voters were voting when they voted in November. One more thing before we let you go. You recently launched the Abramsky Report online at theabramskyreport.com. What is it? Well, it's a column, and I write lots of articles, and I write lots of reported pieces and columns for publications all over the country, including, of course, The Nation. But at the same time, there are many thoughts that I have about the historical moment we're in, the philosophical issues that the Trump era raises, the um, historical parallels that the Trump era raises to mid-century authoritarian regimes and so on, that I want sort of a sort of freedom to explore on my own terms. So I wrote, set up this column. It's called theabramskyreport.com, and it's a subscription column. And basically, you can access a once-a-week political column that I write on immigration issues, on issues around distribution of power, distribution of rights on the way that the Trump administration is breaking down constitutional norms. Um, And these are the, the columns where I really go out there exploring what I think Trump means for this country, its politics and its culture and so on. And I'm having fun with it. I write once a week. I put up a column on Friday mornings. My subscribers get their columns and we get into the comments conversation about it over the weekend. So I hope that listeners out there will check it out. Sasha Abramsky, you can read his report on the new fight over restoring voting rights to felons in Florida at thenation.com. And you can check out the Abramsky Report online at theabramskyreport.com. Thank you, Sasha. My pleasure. Thanks again. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK. Finally, your Minnesota moment meets Ivanka Watch in the Boundary Waters Wilderness Canoe Area. Your Minnesota moment, of course, is news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Today's news is from page one of the New York Times. For a long time, a mining company has been trying to open a copper mine in the Boundary Waters Wilderness Canoe Area. It's a vast paradise of federally protected lakes and rivers and forests along the border with Canada. And environmentalists and canoe people have been fighting like crazy to block the mine. Copper mining is one of the most environmentally destructive activities on Earth. It'll pollute the streams and lakes of this wonderful wilderness for centuries. Now the New York Times has reported that the billionaire who owns the copper mining company also owns the $5 million house in Washington, D.C. that is currently rented by Jared and Ivanka small world. A million acres of lakes and forests in the Boundary Waters provide a rich habitat for thousands of species, we are told, including the gray wolf and the Canada lynx. But below the surface, we are also told, there are an estimated 4 billion tons of copper and nickel ore. They say it's one of the world's largest undeveloped mineral deposits. Can the friends of the wolf and the lynx fight off the friends of Trump? My suggestion is to invite Jared and Ivanka to go canoeing in the Boundary Waters. Be sure to pick a time when the mosquitoes have not yet arrived and when those horrible black flies are already gone, the ones that bite. Also, no long portages where Jared and Ivanka would have to carry their own canoes over their heads. Once Jared and Ivanka see how wonderful the Minnesota canoe country can be, 
they will tell their landlord to keep his mind out of the boundary waters. This has been your Minnesota Moment and Ivanka Watch special features on KPFK Los Angeles. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests. John Nichols talked about the Supremes in gerrymandering. And Jeet here, the nation's new national affairs correspondent, commented on Trump and Iran. We also listened to Lloyd Price sing what could become the new school song if Robert E. Lee High School is renamed Stagger Lee High School. Thanks to today's engineer, Lisette Tapia. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Stay tuned at four tonight. Johnny Wendell on KPFK will be sitting in for Sonali Kolhatkar. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>